So, does the Christian God exist? We sang in that song uh, about God existing and then becoming a man in Jesus. Vi snackade om i den sången vi vi sang om Gud som finns och att han blev människa i Jesus. Are there any good reasons to believe in that kind of God? Finns det någon goda grunder för att tro på den guden? And to believe that he has the, the qualities that that song talked about his beauty, his being a creator, his being good. Och finns det goda grunder för att tro att han har akkurat de egenskaperna som vi sang om i den sången att han är vacker Well, as a philosopher uh, and a Christian, I think that there are some good reasons to believe those things, and I'd like to try and cover some of those with you tonight. This is the, the Nicene Creed. And if BibleGateway.com has served me well, I have it in Norwegian as well as English. Uh, you brought the uh, the slight new Norwegian dialect here, but uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe we forgot the Norwegian. I tried. It's a good attempt. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going to use this to to point out something about how we think about God. We shall see a little bit about how we think about God. At the beginning of the creed, it talks about believing in God the Father. Uh, the creator and then it goes on to talk about Jesus Christ the son of God and I think that if you believe that there is a God you will find it more plausible to think that Jesus is God so it will be more Jesus var Gud. than you would if you didn't believe in a God. So I'm going to argue, as many philosophers will, in two stages. The first is to give some arguments to think that there is a creator God. And then to move on to giving arguments to say that Jesus was God incarnate. Because the, the arguments for Jesus will be more convincing if you already believe that there is a God. This chap here is an American philosopher called Alvin Plantinga. And he says that there are at least a couple of dozen or so good arguments for God. We won't look at all of them tonight. <laughs> and concerning uh, arguments for thinking that Jesus is God, I think there are at least five good arguments. Again, we won't look at them all, but I'll briefly mention the list. Um, we will look at uh, Jesus' claims in the context of his character. You can look at historical evidence that he worked miracles. Um, and particularly the, the miracle of the resurrection. Which is a, a miracle that I think we've got a lot of good evidence for. Fourth, there is the argument that he fulfilled prophecies uh, that were made a long time before he lived. And finally, there is our own religious experience that we can have of Jesus as Christians today. 
but I will just, um, if we have time, look at maybe one or two of those arguments. Uh, these are the arguments that we might have time to look at, and um, we'll get started with the first one in a moment. But this argument here is a kind of overview, a sort of yeah, overview, translate, of the, the general structure of argument that I'm making about God. Part of my work with Damaris in England is to do school conferences with A-level students and to teach them how to construct good arguments. En del av jobben min er å ha ha undervisning med ungdommer og lære dem å argumentere på en sunn måte. I can do that in two hours, but I haven't got that long tonight. Jeg kan gjøre det på to timer, men så mye tid har vi ikke igjen. So very briefly, veldig kort. A good argument needs to have two truth claims about reality, which are called premises. Så et godt argument må ha to påstander om virkeligheten. Det kalles premisser. And if they kind of tie together logically in the right way, they lead you to prove to believing a conclusion. Hvis de to som heter premisser, de to påstandene, hvis de kan kobles riktig, så leder de deg til en konklusjon. Premise, premise, conclusion. Here is a classic example from Aristotle. Premiss, premiss, konklusjon, det er... Uh, a classic example from the gamle philosopher Aristoteles. Um, Socrates, uh, another ancient Greek man, Socrates is mortal. Socrates er deadly. Second premise. So the andre premise. All mortals die. Alle dødelige dør. Conclusion. Socrates will die. Conclusion. Socrates will dø. So you see how the structure works. So as an overview, in my first premise, I'm saying that if I could show that there's a non-physical, intelligent, good creator of the universe, then I would have shown that there's a God. The first premise here is en ikke-fysisk, intelligent og god skaper finnes, så finnes Gud. My second premise is that I've got a number of arguments which, when taken together, manage to do that job. Og det andre premisset her sier at jeg har sånne gode argumenter for eksistensen av en god Gud som vi tenker om. And so the conclusion that follows is that there is a God. Now, of course, the important thing for me to do with this argument to convince people of the conclusion is to make good on that second premise. And I will leave it to you to see whether you think I managed to do something towards that tonight. Okay. First argument, um, a particular version of what's called the cosmological argument. There are three arguments, one version of this is called cosmological argument, also arguments out from cosmos, universe, arguments out from universe, for post of good fits. Good. Don't worry about the long name. It, it, you could just say a, an argument that God is the cause of the universe. Here is my, my first premise, my first truth claim. There was a first physical event. This satellite is the COBE satellite. Which took pictures of the microwave background radiation of the universe. Som tog bild av mikrobølgestrålingen i universet. Blue is cold and red is hot. Blue er kald og rød var. As we're going from the past into the present, the universe is getting colder. 
Etter hvert som vi går fra fortiden og inn i nåtiden, så blir det kallere og kallere universet. Like a cup of coffee cooling down over time. Kaffe og kaffe som kjøler ned. If you come across a cold cup of coffee, hvis du treffer en kald kaffe og kaffe, you know, if you visit a cold kaffe og kaffe, you can tell something da kan du gjette noe om hvor lenge den har stått sånn. It's a bit like that with um, this data. Med denne bakgrunnsrollingen så er det litt sånn. It, it's like the universe started with a big hot explosion and it's been cooling down over time. Det er som universet har startet med en veldig varm eksplosjon fra starten så har det kjørt ned etter hvert. And this is one of the bits of information that scientists have used to back up what's called the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe. And according to that theory, the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. So it's been around for a long time, but not for an infinite amount of time. Just a, a, a finite amount of time that we've measured. Begrenset til 13,8 milliarder år. So if you trace the series of physical events that have happened in the history of reality, hvis du ser etter rekkefølgen av hendelsene i vårt univers, go back far enough, kommer langt tilbake nok, you'd get to the first one. Så kommer du til den første hendelsen. Second premise. Det andre premisset, Every physical event has a cause. And that physical cause has an cause. Seems to be at least our everyday experience of reality. There were the dominoes falling over. We know someone pushed them. This domino falls, so we know that it's a bit bent over. I think it's a bit like that with the universe. Oh, I thought this link meant the universe also. If both of these two premises are true. The conclusion that follows is therefore the first physical event had a cause. Hvis det slik at disse to er sanne, så betyr det at den første fysiske hendelsen i universet hadde en årsak. That's quite interesting. Det er interessant. But let me build on that a bit. Da må jeg bygge litt videre på det. Let me carry forward that conclusion da må jeg bringe denne konklusjonen litt fremover, litt videre. And make it the first premise in a new argument. Og så skal jeg lage dette premiss i et nytt argument. So the first physical event had a cause. Det første premissen på dette nye argumentet er at det første hendelsuniverset hadde en årsak. But, second premiss. Det andre premissen er... The cause of the first physical event can't itself have been a physical event. Årsaken til den første fysiske hendelsen i universet kan ikke selv være en fysisk hendelse. One domino knocks over the next domino. Den ene domino-brikken som veter de andre. But the first domino wasn't knocked over by a previous domino. Men den første dominoen var ikke dyttet over av et annet domino. Because it's the first domino. So what pushed it? So what dipped the first domino breaking? If the first physical event had a cause, and that cause couldn't have been a previous physical event, this and that physical hendelse have an answer, or and that or and that physical hendelse. Og enhver hendelse har en årsak. Surely this conclusion follows. Så følger denne konklusjonen. The first physical event had a non-physical cause. Da må vi konkludere at denne første hendelsen hadde en ikke-fysisk årsak. Which is at least part of what people mean by God. Og det er noe del av hva mennesker mener med Gud. It's not the whole thing, but it... Ikke alt om Gud, men at han er ikke fysisk, han er over det fysiske. But it's something. Men det er noe av hva vi mener med Gud. There's the argument in full. Her er argumentet i sin fulle 
what I suggest we do is there, there are a number of students from the oh. Gimlachollin here oh. if they spread themselves out in the room I'll just give you a moment to to have a conversation in Norwegian in, oh. in your groups and if you want to ask question of me you, you can do that yourself or if you're a bit shy or want it, you know you can ask your student uh, to do that for you in a moment and suddenly we ask is that, is that to give some feedback yes um, would they like to ask feedback or give any questions to we, or actually I, but <laughs> I asked them, because I think it's, it's interesting. We, the Christian people, are so used to, to use Bible as argue, but you go outside the Bible. Hmm. And I just ask, why? And, and is, is this new? Why do you choose hmm. to go that way? Let me give two brief responses. The first is to say that no, it's not a new idea. If you read Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul was in Athens, debating with Greek philosophers, he argues with them about their idea of God. He doesn't quote from the Bible. From the Jewish scriptures at all. He does quote from a couple of Greek playwrights. So the words of some pagan playwrights are now the words of scripture. All truth, wherever it's found, is God's truth. So you can argue to him from the scripture or from the beginning of the universe or from the existence of this chair. I could. <laughs> the second thing is that as you'll see in, in a bit I will use the Bible in my arguments for, particularly my arguments for Jesus but when I make those arguments I won't be treating or assuming that the Bible is the word of God because if I'm talking to someone who doesn't believe in God and I say I believe Jesus was God and they say why? and I say because the Bible says so and they ask why do you believe what the Bible says and I say well because it's the word of God they're going to say but I don't believe in God so first of all I have to convince them that Jesus is God and then later I might argue that the Bible is God's word. But you can use the Bible just as what everyone agrees that it is. A historical document from the ancient world. With people's reports about things that they saw and experienced. Yeah. 
Yeah, just thinking, um, does everyone, I think, will agree that everything needs a physical start? You know, something has to start things. We agree on that. I think everyone will agree on that. But then when you're going to talk about God, maybe the question will be then, where did God come from? Mm. You know, that could be a difficult question. Yeah. Hun sier det, altså, at de fleste er enige om at universet har begynt en gang. Men så sier det, ja, men hvis vi sier Gud begynte universet, så vil jo en god del si, ja, men når begynte Gud da? It's a very important question. Det er et veldig viktig spørsmål. Because that's a very common objection to this argument. You can read in, in lots of books by atheists and even school textbooks. That will explain the cosmological argument as follows. First premise. Everything has a cause. Second premise. The universe is a thing. Conclusion. So the universe must have a cause. Conclusion. For the universe is a thing, or the thing is a So has the universe an cause. And let's say that's God. Or that's you. Then also can argue. Objection. Invention. But if God exists, he's a thing. And it's true. Things. So are you having a thing? And if everything must have a cause, then that would mean that God would have to have a cause. And so on. And so on. Problem. Notice that that is not the argument that I gave. This premise here does not say that everything must have a cause. This one says everything that's physical must have a cause. Other ways of putting the, the argument, other versions of the argument might use slightly different premises. Like, um, everything that depends for its existence on something else must have something else to depend on. Which seems pretty obvious. So, let's take this version. Everything, every physical event must have a cause. And I argue that God is the cause of the first physical event. And someone says, but hang on a minute. What caused God? I, I will say, God is not a physical event. The argument is really saying there's got to be some kind of first cause. The buck has to stop somewhere. And this argument is really saying that it's more plausible to think that the first cause is God. Than to think that it's something physical. Because physical things need causes. Is that okay? <laughs> Great. Any others? Hello. Vi kan få oss et annet vei nå. Mange sier at vi stemmer for åpne. Hva argumenter kan en komme med da, som kristen? That is a slightly different topic, but she's bringing up, people say we descend from apes. What would you say to that? It's not exactly the same as the proofs for God, but this proof of man, maybe? I'm not sure. I think I would say it's a very complicated issue. 
because it in, involves lots of different subject areas. Det, det studi- and how they relate to each other. What is science? What is theology? How do we understand what the Bible is really saying? How do we fit all of these ideas together into one coherent story about reality. And because it's so complex, it shouldn't be too surprising that, that Christians have different answers. Um, I would simply recommend a, a paper that I've written that you can find online. Yes, just Google my name and um, about I think it's called a, a rough guide to creation and evolution. Det kallas en rough guide for skapelse evolution. Så kan du Google den på nettet. It won't give you the answer. Det ger inte But it will help you to think through what are the important questions to ask to come to your own reasoned view on the topic. Mm. Uh, the second helpful thing that I, I think I could say on this I think that it's important to make a distinction. Uh, philosophers love making distinctions <laughs> helps keep everything neat and tidy and the distinction I would make is this on the one hand there is the doctrine of creation the idea that God exists and he created everything apart from himself and so the universe exists for a reason. So therefore finnes universet med en grund, det finns en orsak och hensikten. On the other hand there are different models or pictures of how God created. På den andra sidan så finns det många olika bilder och modeller om hurdan Gud skapade. All Christians believe in the doctrine of creation. Alla kristna tror att Gud har skapat. But different Christians have different models or pictures of how God created. And you can have good reasons for believing in the doctrine of creation. And that means that, that sorting out what you think about the different pictures of creation is not particularly important. Because the main thing is believing in the doctrine. And if the doctrine is true, then some picture or other will be true. But it might not be important for everybody to know what they think about this side of the issue. It can be perfectly reasonable to be a Christian and believe in the doctrine of creation and say, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Shall we move on to one more argument for God? This is an argument called the fine-tuning argument. They call it fine-stillings-argument for good fine-instilling. Think of a way in which a, a nice-sounding piano is one that has a piano tuner who makes sure it's all in tune. You hear a nice sounding piano and you don't think, ah, it must have been made by an explosion in a piano factory. You probably think, someone who was really clever made that. 
du tänker det säkert er en skaffing en dyktig kar som har lagt och skrutt samman detta. There's a very wide broad category of arguments for God called the design argument. Det är väldigt många versioner av något som kallas design argument har gjort. The fine tuning argument is a is a particular design argument. Det är slags design argument det med fin inställningen. That argues from the the basic laws of physics. Den argumenterar utifrån de grundläggande lagarna i fysiken. To a designer. Till att utifrån dessa så måste finnas en designer en som har lagt dessa villkorna. We we just talked about the Big Bang theory. Vi snackade nog inte om Big Bang teorin. Uh, scientists have found that that Big Bang was very special. The laws of physics that exist and the way that they are, uh, how strong or weak they are in relationship to each other. Have to be a very special way in order for interesting things to exist in the universe, for life to exist. Vi måste vara inställda på en helt helt speciell måte för att universum ska bli intressant och liv skulle vara möjligt eller så. Let me illustrate. Suppose we had a universe-creating machine. Tänk vi hade en maskin som skapar universum. And on that machine we put one dial for every law of physics we want to give a universe. Så vi sätter en knapp för varje enda lov i universum. And we set one up that represents the way our universe actually is. Så sätter vi upp den här. And we took just one of those laws. And we change, make it slightly stronger. Say. And then that's all we did. Then we press the make a universe button. The surprising thing is that the result would be a lifeless universe. Very dull and boring. <laughs> Scientists were surprised by this. Some of them were rather upset by this. <laughs> because they said, looks a bit like the universe is a set-up job. I won't go into the details um, of the numbers and the physics here. But let me give you two quotes from non-Christian scientists. This is Professor Paul Davis. He's a cosmologist, a scientist who studies the structure of the universe. And he's an agnostic. That's someone who doesn't believe in God, but he's not an atheist. He says, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't, I don't know. He says, uh, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it were designed for life. And he recently wrote a book called The Goldilocks Enigma, Why the Universe is Just Right for Life. You know that you know the fairy tale of Goldilocks and the three bears? And uh, Goldilocks finds the porridge. And one is too hot for her to eat. And one is far too cold. And one is just right. Well, our universe is just right for life. And it's not a one in three chance. It's a one in numbers so big that you couldn't write them down. Because there wouldn't be enough fundamental particles in the universe for you to write those numbers down. If you could put if you could put a number on every fundamental particle in reality. Very long odds. <laughs> This is Professor Fred Hoyle. 
Den anderen, ein Atheist mit Fred Hoyle. A very famous scientist. He's an atheist. An atheist. And he was one of the first scientists to discover one of these examples of fine tuning in the universe. Han var en av de første som fant dette med fininstillingselement uh, uh, i universet. Mm. And he said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. Mm-hmm. En uh, common sense, en vanlig hverdagsfornuft tolkning av disse fakta antyder for oss at et superintellekt har tøyset med fysikken for oss. These are very interesting admissions. Particularly when you combine them with this principle of rationality. Um, a rule of thinking well. It's, it's got a technical name called the principle of credulity. But I, I like explaining it like this. I just said that good being able to follow okay. you I haven't been with you in this deep water <laughs> yeah. if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and it's swimming like a duck and so on it's probably a duck that is like philosophy if someone wanted to try and say no I know it looks like a duck but really it isn't a duck they'd be the one who'd have to give you a good reason to believe that it wasn't a duck. It wouldn't be your job to provide good reasons for thinking that it's a duck. This applies to, to all sorts of things that we think we know. Yeah. Have you seen the film The Matrix? Was that the Matrix film? No one? I'm sure. <laughs> it's possible, isn't it? It's possible that we are all in the Matrix and we don't know it. But I bet none of you actually thinks that you really are in the Matrix. Because life doesn't look like that. I think you're perfectly reasonable to think you're not in the Matrix. And if you met someone who really thought that you were... So if you met someone who thought that you were only in the Matrix, just like Morpheus, Morpheus Matrix. it would be his job to convince you. So it would be his job to convince you that you are in the Matrix. Not your job to convince him. Not your job to convince him that this is really life. For all in the life you are in, it gives the impression of being real. That is, it's usually reasonable to think that things really are the way that they seem to be. And if you didn't live by that principle, you'd get into all sorts of difficulties. <laughs> and probably go mad. <laughs> so if we combine this principle with those admissions from those non-Christian scientists, should believe that things are the way that they seem to be unless you've got good reason to doubt them. 
til å tro at tingene er slik de gir inntrykk av det, hvis ikke det er gode grunner for å tro noe annet. The fine-tuning of the universe looks like, seems like, it's designed. Så fininnstillingen gir inntrykk av å være designet av noen, av å være laget og stilt inn av noen. Therefore, unless someone can give us a good reason for doubting this, we should think that the fine-tuning is designed. And if there's real design, then there must be a real designer. Which again is at least part of what people mean by God. It's not everything. But it's something. And if you add it to what we already know from the previous argument, you can see that we're beginning to build up a picture that would be reasonable for people to say, yeah, that's God. Discussion time. So I would make a number of arguments like that. That build up a, a clearer and clearer picture of God. And which produce more and more evidence for God. And if you think that there's a God out there, then you couldn't say, well, miracles are impossible. Because if there's a God, surely he can work miracles. Like um, becoming a man. And doing various things that gave people good reasons to think that he was God become man. And I mentioned earlier five arguments that I would give. And it might well be that no one of those arguments on its own would be enough to convince you that Jesus was God. But if each of those arguments has some plausibility, some strength of its own, each one should make you slightly less skeptical about Jesus being God. And by the time I got to the end of all five arguments, you might be convinced. So let me just give you one argument that I think has some strength to it. But I think it's important that I say that I wouldn't necessarily think that this would, on its own, convince someone. It's part of a, a broader case that could be made. But it's still interesting in and of itself. This is the first argument that I mentioned about Jesus' claims about himself in the context of his character. And here I start mentioning the Bible. <laughs> but not assuming that it's the inspired word of God. Just treating it as a historical document by the, by the same kind of rules that ancient historians would treat anything with. Okay. Here is a guy called Paul Copan, a quote that summarizes some of the evidence from the Bible about Jesus. Jesus claimed certain functions and abilities that were in that culture reserved for God alone. He said he had the authority to forgive sins. 
which the Jews understood was something that only God could do. You may have heard this illustration. Um, if I hurt you, you could decide to forgive me. I hope you would. <laughs> but if I hurt you, can you forgive me? I've hurt him, not you. The only person who's hurt by every sin would be God. But Jesus said to people, your sins are forgiven. Not for things that they had done to him personally here on earth, as it were. But for things that they'd done to other people. Who does this guy think he is? Well, he thought he was God. And if you think you're God, it's perfectly reasonable to think that you could forgive me for something that I'd done to him. Yeah. Um, he claimed, Jesus claimed that he was the ultimate judge of all. And he identified himself as David's Lord. This is a, a big deal because the Jews held the King David in high respect. And David wrote a poem that's in the Old Testament um, that talks about God as his Lord. And Jesus says, I'm David's Lord. This guy from ancient history he was the top dog only God topped him Jesus says I top David who does this guy think he is? God and there are lots of examples like this that you can find in different independent uh, witnesses from very close to the events uh, by people who probably knew him or people that knew people who knew him. Here's another uh, particularly important example. I, I have it in some sort of version of Norwegian. <laughs> can, you, can you read that passage? Or? Yeah, after you got the 1930 translation, that's okay. <laughs> translation I read when I was uh, a teenager. Yeah. Thank you. So anyone can find for free. But it's Norwegian. Good. For any English listeners there might be, this is uh, Jesus at this trial. Uh, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man, very important phrase, Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tears his clothes. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses, he asked. You've all heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemn him as worthy of death. This passage, Jesus picks up on language from the Old Testament. From the book of Daniel. Particularly the beginning of this chunk here. 
Speciellt i begynnelsen av dette kapitel 7, Daniel. Fremdeles fikk jeg mine nattlydsyn av Sebordes. En som lignet menneskesønn kom med himmelen skyer, og han gikk bort den gamle dagen og ble ført frem for ham. Og det ble gitt ham herredømme og ære og rike, og alle folk etter og tunge mål skulle tjene ham. Hans herredømme er et evig herredømme som ikke forgår, hans rike er et rike som ikke ødelegges. English translation. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approaches the ancient of days, was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations of men of every language worshipped him. The Jews were very clear that you could only worship God. Not a man. Not a creature. Not even an angel. Only God. Here, one like the Son of Man receives worship. And the clouds of heaven are a, a Jewish picture of the glory of God. Picture language. So one like a son of man, like a human being, but with the glory of God, who can receive worship. And, and here at his trial, with his life on the line, <laughs> Jesus applies that language to himself. If there was ever a time for a bit of theological nuance. No, 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 I didn't really mean it like that. But no. Jesus reaffirms his self-image as divine. And so lots of New Testament scholars will agree that Jesus thought, thought of himself as divine, as someone who stood in the very shoes of God, as it were. Just one of these quotes uh, from a British scholar called N.T. Wright. It says, Jesus believed himself called to do and be what in the scriptures only Israel's God did and was. Jesus mente at han selv at han selv var kalt til å gjøre og være det som i skriftene kun Israels Gud gjorde og var. Given these facts what's the best explanation? There are limited options for explaining this. Let me put it on a diagram like this. I've given you evidence, some reasons to think that Jesus claimed to be divine. That claim was either true or false. If it was if it was true, then he is Lord, he was divine. But what if it was false? Well, if it was false, he either knew that it was false, or he didn't. If he knew that he was making a false claim, he's a liar. If he didn't know that he was making a false claim, he's basically a lunatic. <laughs> to the degree that you think that the lunatic or the liar explanations aren't very plausible, so you think it's implausible that his claim was false. And thus, <laughs> and thus you think it's more plausible that his claim is true. Let me explain a little bit more depth. 
lite grann mer. Let's look at the liar option. Låt se på lögnmuligheterna. And in his culture, a blasphemer, which is a big deal to them. Och i en judskultur är det att lyva och påstå sig själv att vara Gud heter blasfemi. Det är den största kriminella handlingen du kan göra. What's his motive? He lacks a plausible motive for lying like this. Why would a clever man like Jesus lie about this, especially at his trial, where he surely would have known that blaspheming would secure a death sentence? If he's a liar, surely he'd want to just save his bacon. If I can apply that expression to someone who's Jewish. <laughs> Maybe the wrong expression. <laughs> Lying for Jesus would seem to be very much out of character from everything else we know about him. Even people who don't believe that he was God often believe that he was a great moral teacher and a, and a devout Jew. Why would such a man perjure himself by blaspheming in such a matter? What about the lunatic explanation? Philosopher Peter Kreeft says something very interesting. A measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. En mål på din galskap är avstånd mellan vad du tror du är och vad du faktiskt är. For a mere human to sincerely, honestly think they're God is a very big mismatch between self-image and reality. It's about as big a mismatch as you could think of. Suppose I came to you and I said this. I'm a pretty decent sort of chap. You might be prepared to give that to me. Suppose I said, I'm the nicest person in this room. You think I'm a bit conceited or up myself. Suppose I said, I... I'm the most moral person in the whole world. I'm pathological, unless that's true. Suppose I say I'm the most moral person there has ever been and could ever be. Indeed, I'm perfect and without sin. Who among you can accuse me of sin? As Jesus is reported to have said. Well, now you think that I'm barking. And I would be. Unless that claim was true. But again, thinking that Jesus was a lunatic, it seems to be out of character with everything else that we know about him. Just read the gospel accounts and think about his wisdom of his moral teachings. And is it really plausible to describe such a man as a loony? Richard Dawkins thinks that this is a bad argument. Yeah. He's a particularly famous British atheist. He objects. Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. 
You don't have to think he's God. He just made an honest mistake. I think this is quite a good reply from a British vicar who published a book called Is God a Delusion? Replying to Dawkins. The irony of The God Delusion, which is Dawkins' book, is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe that there is a God. But that Jesus was not deluded even though he thought he was God. Those two claims just don't seem to fit together. Let's have a bit of discussion and feedback about that, and then if we have time, we can do Q&A about anything you like. I, I but, think uh, we'll, we'll have to do Q&A about all just right now. I okay. Er der nogen spørgsmål eller kommentarer, du vil have nogen? Så lad os da. stay on a little longer, så so sure. we can talk one-on-one. On one. Uh, around the tables or so on. Ja. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can, can I take it in Norwegian? Ja. Men altså, på hverdagen, på disciplene, og hvordan kan vi ikke vite at de ikke var Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then, how how can we know, know that the disciples were not lunatics? Because Good question. we have our knowledge about Jesus from from them disciples. And, yeah. Yeah. One thing, uh, I, I often like giving two answers. <laughs> you may have noticed. First thing to say. Just treating what they wrote as ancient historical documents. Historians apply particular rules of evidence. Uh, to those documents. Um, particularly important is, is multiple testimony, multiple witnesses. The more people that tell you the same thing, the more you tend to trust it. Maybe one person is 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 mad and seen something that's not real. It's less likely that two people are mad and have seen the same thing that's not real. Uh, there are multiple witnesses to Jesus saying and doing the kind of thing that makes us think that he thought he was God. Okay. The other thing would be to say that a similar um, lunatic, liar or correct argument could apply to the disciples. If they were lying, what did they get for their lies? What was their motive? Money, fame, power, um, being crucified upside down, uh, burnt as torches in Nero's garden, perks of the job like that. Seems quite implausible. And again, read the other things that these these men wrote. For example, John, the Apostle John. An eyewitness who wrote John's Gospel and the letters of John. Just read those documents and think, is it really plausible for me to call this guy a loony? I might disagree with him but is he coming across as so deluded so out of touch with reality 
That the things that he says, I can't even trust that Jesus said any of that stuff. For me, I think his tale is plausible. See, there are the facts, as it were, and what best explains them. And lots of, of non-Christian uh, scholars would agree with the kind of facts that I built my argument on that Jesus really thought of himself this way and so on. They would tend, if they disagree with me about the best explanation, I think that's often because they don't believe that there's a God. And so they start off as very skeptical about Jesus being God. But if you approached that evidence already thinking, well, maybe there could be a God. You would find it more persuasive. That's why I, I structured my argument in the way I did. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.